Uh, yeah, well, you know, going back, like I had lost my street credit, you know, operating as the ass. And I was like, what do I really do? And it was true. It's true. It's always been trails. Trails are the nucleus, right? Without, like I said earlier, without trails, you don't have mountain biking. You don't have, I don't care how cool your bike is. If you don't have a good trail to ride it on, it doesn't matter. And so that's really, you know, the essence of it. And so... Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 90 features someone who might be the most fitting guest ever for the Trail Effect podcast. He goes by the name The Trail Whisperer and wears a disco ball on his head in his spare time. This would be Kurt Gensheimer. Kurt is no stranger to mountain biking and trails. I could say more, but I'll leave that up to Kurt during this conversation. I'd like to take a moment to thank all the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect podcast on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all of the sharing, commenting, and taking of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with the Trail Whisperer, Kurt Gensheimer. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Kurt Gensheimer, otherwise known as Genshammer, according to his email address. I won't give you the rest of it. You guys will have to figure the rest of it out. He is the artist formerly known as the Angry Single Speeder, aka The Ass. And I say formally known because he is now known as the Trail Whisperer. I haven't seen a disco ball lately. I don't know if you still rock that thing. Are you still playing drums on the side of the trail? Not sure. There hasn't been a Downeyville Classic lately, but Kurt's done a lot of things in the world of trails and mountain biking. Uh, you, you're a contributor to uh, multiple publications, so you have been around a, a bit, and you are friends with some of the other guests that I've had on the show, such as Greg Mezu and Victor Sheldon, and I know there's others. How's it going today, Kurt? Doing great. How are you, Josh? I'm doing really good. This is a total last oh. minute thing. We're, we're totally flying off the cuff. He has no topics. I have no real topics other than we're no going to talk topics, trails. No agenda. Just BS, man. We're just going to BS. <laughs> That's the beauty of, of things like podcasts. And there is no video for those. We, are, we have video for us, but I don't release video. I just release audio. That's good for me because I have a face made for radio. Well, we're only doing radio. So there we go. Modern 2022 radio, I guess. Mm-hmm. How's it going today, Kurt? Uh, great day, man. I'm yeah. glad we were able to connect briefly here. Cause you know, like I said, I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of downtime just doing nothing, but this morning you caught me doing nothing. So here I am. Yeah. What are you doing in the Sacramento area? Uh, you well, ride, obviously. Uh, I don't spend much time in Sacramento, but I have a friend who lives here and, um, my partner, she's flying out to Italy tomorrow for a couple of weeks. Um, and so we're dropping her off at the airport. So we came down to hang out for the day with her friends before they take off. And then I'm going back home. I live in Verdi, which is uh, right near Reno, between Reno and Truckee. So head back to Verdi tomorrow and then uh, head up to Downeyville for a couple of days later this week. I work up there too. Um, yeah. So I'm in SAC for a day. <laughs> well, for those that may be living under a rock, and don't know who the ass is or the trail whisperer, let's do a, let's kind of get a brief backstory on how you found this world of mountain biking and then parlay that into what you're doing now with trails and all the things you're uncovering in this La Sierra area region. Yeah. Uh, always been riding a bike. Uh, got my first mountain bike when I was 13. Um, grew up in Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area, cut my teeth literally and figuratively racing bikes in West Virginia as a teenager. 
um, and just like fell in love with the sport and uh, always had mountain biking in my life. Uh, I've gone through phases, you know, where I was doing more riding road bikes and stuff, but always came back to the mountain bike and have pretty much been exclusive mountain bike for the last 20 years almost now. And trails have always been a, a definitely a central part of my experience riding the bike because without good trails, there's no mountain biking, right? So yeah, and I've just gravitated towards more trail stuff. Like I have a background in journalism. So I am a writer. I've been a freelance writer for a long time, more than 15 years. And, you know, it didn't start out in the bike industry. I was doing a lot of stuff in the automotive industry and, and like, just like brand marketing and stuff. And, but then I realized I want to do this stuff for, you know, the mountain bike world and trails. And it's been super fun to be able to ride and write about riding. So that's what I've been focused on now the last 10 years or so. Yeah. And living in Nevada, I know you visited a place that is, is a place that I haven't been to, but has been one of my favorite places to uncover through this podcast, which is Ely, Nevada. Yeah. What are, yep. you, what are your thoughts on that place? Ely's a really uh, fascinating town. Um, you know, beyond the fact that they're building a bunch of trails there, uh, Ely built modern America. Uh, and when I say that, I mean, during the dawn of uh, electricity, Ely had one of the largest copper deposits in the world. And so all the modern civilization that we know in America, telephone lines, power pole, electrical lines, everything in your house, water pipes, everything. A lot of that came from Ely for more than 100 years. So that area has an insane amount of history um, and legacy. And but in, you know almost 40 years ago, it completely just shut down and there was nothing going on there. When you go to Ely, even today, it's like walking back in time, 40 years. It's like trapped in 1983. It's kind of crazy, but the trails there, there's a devoted group of people there in Ely. The trails are really good quality. It's there's, and they're growing every year. There's more and more trail and it's a great stopover. I think that the awesome thing about Ely is a lot of people drive highway 50 between Tahoe and Colorado, Moab. And um, if you're looking for a place to stop for a day and refuel and just hang out, Ely's a great stop. There's days worth of riding there and a, an a burgeoning little trails community. Yeah. And Highway 50, if I remember right, that's the, what once was dubbed the loneliest highway. Yeah, still is. <laughs> and when I, when I spoke with Kyle Horvath on this over a year ago now, he wants to make it the most mountain bikingest highway because there's other stuff between Ely and Reno. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we, Kyle and I have talked about this a lot and his, his vision for this, um, for the state of Nevada is like state of Nevada, mountain biking in Nevada doesn't have to be the destination. It can be a stop on an ultimate destination. And I think there's a lot to be said for being a, like a stopover state. It doesn't sound sexy on the surface, but if you can get someone to stop for a day to ride and be like, that was really awesome. Maybe they'll spend two days there. Maybe they'll spend three days there. Maybe they'll alter their plans a little and be like, actually, I think I need to ride here maybe another extra day or two. And it's just kind of that like gateway drug. You know, you get someone here for a day and they're like, that was awesome. Next year, let's spend two days in Nevada or three days in Nevada. Cause you can get lost. I mean, Nevada, right. Is it, the expanse is endless. And if you like the big adventure in, in super remote, part of the country can't get more remote than Nevada. Let's go to Reno. Cause at one point before Reno, you, uh, lived in San Diego. Yep. What took you to Reno? Um, you know, in San Diego, I was uh, there for like five years and I had to get back to the mountains. And, um, so I searched all over the West for, you know, the town I wanted to live in and Reno just it checked all the boxes. This was in 2013. It was cheap the access to trails was pretty unmatched. Tahoe's right there. You know, I had a lot of friends living in the Bay and Sacramento. So that was cool. Cause it's two, three hour drive mammoths right there. The desert's right there. You know, Lassen, the Cascades, just three hours North. I mean, it's just as an airport, as a university, it was off the radar. People were like Reno, you know, it's just like, they made a fart face, you know, when they would say that. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, it sucks here. Don't come here. You're not going to like it. Right. And, but people, I think the thing for me in Reno, the kind of the eye opener 
that made my decision to move there was I met a lot of people when I was visiting who grew up in Reno, left Reno, went other places, and 10 years later came back and raised a family because they're like, this place is actually great. It's an awesome place. And that was for me, the clincher is like, if people are coming back, there's a reason for it, you know? Yeah. How would you categorize the mountain biking, like specific to the Reno area? Cause I've not, I've been to Reno only in the winter to fly into say, go to Tahoe or go to Mammoth. That's the airport mm-hmm. I've flown into. Um, but how is the mountain biking there? Um, it, it's what's cool about Reno is it's right on the Eastern edge of the Sierra Nevada. So you have like these different zones within a 20 minute drive. I mean, you can be you know, Peavine, which is kind of the local trails to right downtown Reno, they're, you know, great shoulder season trails. So like in the winter, when the high country's all snowed in, if you want to get out on a ride, Peavine's always rideable unless it's wet, because then it's like the, the death clay mud that you just don't ever even want to look at, um, or it'll just destroy your bike. But when it's dry, it's amazing. Great riding in the winter. Uh, you know, it's always sunny, like, right. Like no tree cover. So even when it's 30 degrees out, it feels warmer, you know, down in South Reno, you've got the Galena trails, um, which go up along Mount Rose, which is full Alpine, right? Like a very rare little pocket of Nevada that you have like a full Sierra Nevada Alpine environment. Um, and then Carson, I mean, Carson's might as, I mean, they're right next to each other. Carson has a bunch of awesome trails. And so there's all kinds of options, you know, close, close to home. And then you've got, you know, where I live in Truckee, it's 20 minutes or Verdi, it's 20 minutes to Truckee from Verdi. So like, it's a super easy drive. There's just a lot of, and the connectivity is happening, right? The trails are getting connected so that you can actually ride from Verdi to Truckee. So there's just, yeah, the next 10 years, I don't think there's anywhere else in the lower, in North America, in the United States right now that has more trail projects going on per mile than in the Reno, Tahoe, La Sierra region. Wow. That's actually pretty impressive. I I did not know that there's that much going on in that area, which is why we're talking. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot. And I don't know how this, like I said, this, this is Kurt and I have loosely connected over different things over social media, especially when you're the Inger single speeder. Cause at that point, single speeding was, uh, was near and dear to my heart. Although I've since moved on and I think you has, it's you have as well. It smells funny. Yeah. It's not, it's, you know, and honestly I'd ride my single speed now. And I don't, it's not the single speeding part that gets me. It's the fact that my single speed, the one that I have, it has a 69 degree head angle. It's got no dropper post, narrow handlebars, all the things that modern bikes don't have. And so I just don't get on it anymore. And every year I think about, I should just build up a, a steel modern geometry single speed. Yeah. They're still fun. I mean, I, I've, I've totally lost my street cred because I just don't ride it that much these days. I won't say anymore because I will. It's just that. The stuff that I've been doing the last, you know, five or so years is just like huge terrain. Like there's just, there's no place for a single speed unless you like to bang your head against a wall and be stubborn. And it, for me, it's, it's about a tool in the toolbox. The single speed is an excellent tool for a job. And the job that I'm working on right now is not, that's not the tool. Um, so, you know, part of the reason why I changed my name is like, yeah, I'm, I've lost all street cred. Uh, as the ass, actually, some people joke with me. They're like, oh, you're still the ass. You're just the anti-single speeder. Yeah. You know, I'll always have a single speed and always ride it. I was, I mean, my first bike was a single speed when I was six years old. I'll always have a single speed. That's just the essence of a bicycle. It's the original bicycle, you know? Yeah. And, you know, for in the, in a lot of applications, obviously not in what you're doing where there's huge, huge days and a lot of, a lot of ground to cover. They're not as hard as people think they are. I don't think at least people make them out to be more than they really are in terms of being difficult. No. Yeah. They're, they're incredibly, um, it's a built-in training program. That's what I liked about it. I mean, I trained for years when I was younger and had training programs and workout schedules and all this junk and garbage. And it just got so tedious. And so I just like, I need to work out today. I'm going to go up that giant mountain on one gear and see how far I can not walk. And that's a training program for, you know, just for dumb people like me, it's like, let's see how far I can go without having to walk. And, um, there's a metaphor for life, right? A single speed, you're either succeeding or you're failing. You're like either walking or you're riding, you win or you lose. So it's like, it's a, and it's a Zen thing. You know, there's no shifting, right? You learn about momentum, you learn about attacking, uh, obstacles with some speed and carrying your momentum through you. It makes you a better rider. Like it's just, it's definitely a, a skill sharpener. 
and they're efficient. When you turn the crank of a single speed while your bike is in a work stand, it turns easier than a bike with a derailleur. Let's just face it. 100%. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Derailleurs are for failures, which they, we always used to say. Yeah. We're both rocking them now. Since we're on that topic, what are, <laughs> yeah, what are you on now? Yeah. Like what, what are, what's in your quiver of bikes or what's your bike of choice when you, you know, when you're going out for just like today after this? So I have a high tower. Really like that bike. Actually, at first it took me a minute to get used to it because it's so long. It's a long bike, long wheelbase, but man, it's super stable at the high speed, loose, like nasty stuff. So that's kind of my go-to overall trail bike, but I have a Trek stash, which has been my like adventure bike for years. It's awesome. It's like my, the monster truck bike, like you 29 by 3.0, you can climb some of the stupidest, steepest, rockiest terrain on those, on that bike. And it's just, you know, it's a hard tail. It's just simple. It can be as a geared bike or single speed. I have, you know, my, my Falcon or gravel bike that I can put two different sets of wheels on 700 or 650. So it's super versatile. I've still got my Ibis Tranny 29. I'll never sell that because it's like a travel bike. The whole rear triangle separates from the front, right? Single speed. And then I have, and I I have an e-bike. I do ride e-bikes. Some people call me Jeb, the jolly (laughs) e-biker. Again, it's a, it's a tool, right? I do a lot of trail projects and um, I'm out in the middle of nowhere a lot. And to get out there is a, is a push with 30 pound pack. So yeah, I have a turbo Levo with the big battery and it's great, man. It saves me. It it enables me to do more work and I have a lot of fun on it. Like out, especially like places like Downeyville and the La Sierra where these trails are built for e-bikes. It's a whole new game, you know? Yeah. E-bikes. We've been talking e-bikes on the podcast more and more. And I, I, I think they're, like you said, they're, it's an important tool for people to have, you know, that they, they, a lot of people gave them a lot of crap in the beginning. Of course, with the guests I had last week, they were kind of crap in the beginning as a bike, but now they're getting, you know, so much better with technology, lighter, go yep. farther, geometry is getting dialed. Everything's getting figured out. Right. Yep. Absolutely. I agree. I think, you know, I've also featured a bunch of adaptive riders and the e-bikes. If it wasn't for e-bike technology, that's helping further the game for adaptive mountain bikers, for hand cycles, for e-assist hand cycles. That wouldn't be where it is if it wasn't for e-bikes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, I see, it's funny. I see parallels like from the single speeding side of things, like, right. There were the aggro single speeders who were like, if you ride a geared bike, like you're an idiot or forget it, or you're not in the club or what, you know, it's just like, okay, whatever. I mean, it's a tool for me. It's not my life. And the e-bike's the same thing. If you ride an e-bike, you're lazy. It's like, okay, well, that's what you think, but you obviously have no idea what you're talking about. You haven't tried one yet. Why don't, I'll, how about this? I'll take you on a ride. We'll go on an e-bike ride together. You tell me at the end of the ride, if I'm lazy and you're lazy, because you end up riding these huge rides and these steep, impossible climbs that you would never even attempt on a mountain bike. And you get to the top and you're like, I worked my ass off getting up that, you know? Yeah. And I will say I have not actually ridden an e-bike yet. And here's it for one reason, one reason only, because I know as soon as I ride one, I'll have to buy one. You will. And that's like, that's my you number will. one yeah, reason for not riding one yet. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, I mean, you're right. And I don't think like for me, the e-bike would never replace the mountain. Like if, if somebody told me you could only have one, I'd pick the mountain bike just because it's just with an e-bike, it still has an electric motor and shit can still go wrong with it, you know, and things can break and it can leave you stranded. It's not likely, but it can happen with a mountain bike. You know, it, you can always figure out a way to make it work because it's, it's fully mechanical and simple and basic. And so, you know, if I had to choose one, I'd always choose the, the, what we call the muscle bike and the muscle yeah. bike. <laughs> it was all right. Acoustic bike, muscle bike, uh, push bike, Amish bike, like all, you know, all the names. Right. So we'll stay on Reno for a second. I don't know. Maybe this is a topic you might not have any knowledge on at all, but coming up in April of 2023 is the PTBA and American trails conference. That'll yep. be, that'll be a good, a good showcase of Reno with a lot of trail builders descending on that city from all over the world. It's a great place to have a trail summit. You know, I think like Interbike was unfortunately the last year of Interbike was in Reno. And some people are like, it died because they had it in Reno. It's like, no, it was already pretty much dead. But 
it was awesome to have that event there for that one year because it really, I think Reno is a great place to have an event like that because of its proximity to trails and the outdoors and it's easy to get to. And yeah, I'm excited to have people come and visit um, from around the country and the world to uh, talk trails in, in, in Nevada, you know, yeah, it's good for the state. Yeah. I know I'm looking forward to attending myself and I don't, you could actually answer this. I don't know. My hope is that I can get over to the Downeyville region, but that might be too early in the year for that or not. When April, uh, lady, I think it's in the twenties of April. Yeah. It's great. Oh, it's a great, you might not be able to get to pack your saddle, but all the, all the stuff below Downeyville, like Hall's ranch and Fiddle Creek and Cal Ida and North Yuba trail is that's like prime time for those trails. It's the best time of year to be riding them actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's when I saw that I was going to Reno and it was going to be in April. I was like, well, I got to try to pair this with that. Yeah. Well, that, that, that maybe will take you on your first e-bike ride on the halls and fiddle and Cal Ida and blow your mind a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't plan on riding one before that. And it's not that I don't want to <laughs> because I don't want to, it's because it's another bike that I'm going to have to buy, unfortunately. Right. And yeah. I don't, and, and truthfully and where, I, where I live, I don't, there isn't much of a need for it where I live. There isn't huge expansive trail networks, right? you know? So it's like, I just got a bike for quote unquote enduro style mm-hmm. riding. It's a 160, 170 slash and it's way over bike. I mean, I'm way over bike for my trails, but I also have a top fuel. So I split the difference between the two and one day I'll take out the slash and one day I'll take out the top fuel. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Tools in the toolbox, man. Well, let's go to how you became the trail whisperer and what you're actually going to accomplish in the Downeyville, La Sierra, Sierra Buttes, all the different names you could put on that region. Uh, yeah, well, you know, going back, like I had lost my street credit, you know, operating as the ass. And I was like, what do I really do? And it was trail. It's trail. It's always been trails. Trails are the nucleus, right? Without, like I said earlier, without trails, you don't have mountain biking. You don't have, I don't care how cool your bike is. You don't have a good trail to ride it on. It doesn't matter. And so that's really, you know, the essence of it. And so because I, my, my specialty is just getting lost in the woods and finding old routes. Um, I'm a history buff. I love history. I grew up, you know, um, kind of in New Jersey as a real little kid, like tromping through the woods where George Washington and the revolutionary army, you know, had their battles. And like, I was infatuated with that kind of history that you could experience in the forest. So that's carried over into, you know, when I first came to Downeyville 20 years ago, it was like modern society, right. The get rich quick overnight millionaire was born in those canyons where people, you know, toiled their lives away trying to make riches. And so there's so much history. And so I would follow these historic paths. There were hundreds of miles of old trail that existed there that were forgotten about over the last hundred years. And uh, some of these old prospectors, they're really good trail builders. They really knew how to build trail through some very impossibly rugged terrain. And it's just really fun to be able to find those old, old trails and bring them back to life. And so that just, yeah became the new moniker was just trail whispering in the woods, finding these routes and, and bringing them back to life. So what's your process like in terms of like getting the old maps and figuring out like, okay, this is where I'm going to go today or this week or this month or however, however long that process takes, you know, what, like kind of the backstory and what, how that all go, comes together. Yeah. Maps are key. I mean, that's like the, you got to have the old stuff. And so it's been, it's like hunting, old maps, you know, I've, I've found, um, some valuable maps. Like there's a lot of old mining cabins in the mountains up there, you know, and I've, I've walked into these abandoned cabins and found like old paper maps that are rotting away. I'm like, I better grab this thing or it's going to be dust in another couple of years, you know? So anything pre 1950 is like kind of gold when it comes to, uh, trail old trails. Cause they, the forest service started taking trails off maps, you know, as they became more modern, the more modern maps don't have the old trails. So finding old USGS maps, finding old local regional maps, books like the historical books. There's a historian who wrote six, six volumes about the history of the La Sierra and has documented like all these newspaper articles and stories and, and hand-drawn maps. And the stuff is invaluable. It's helped me find a lot of different 
trails I otherwise wouldn't have been able to find just reading and researching. And, and that's part of the fun. You know, it's, you go out into a zone, you get lost, and then you get back and you read about the zone you were just in historically. And it, it's what fuels me every day. I love that stuff. It's super cool. What is uh? do you have a good story about maybe a day or a week that you've been out and you've kind of hit the proverbial gold mine in terms of like getting to the trail that you found on the map or getting to the old road or that old bench cut? Yeah, there was a, there was a trail, there's a trail in Downeyville that uh, it's a historic trail. And, um, I stumbled across there's, there were actually two of them and I stumbled across one of them years ago. Uh, it was on an older map, so it wasn't that hard to find. And, you know, uh, the, a, mo- a crew out of uh, Grass Valley, a crew of moto guys keep the trail open and logged out, but they don't really brush it or they don't do any bench work. They keep it raw and super, you know, like there's poison oak in the trail and blackberry bushes. And like when you're wearing battle armor, it doesn't matter. But when you're on your mountain bike, it's not very fun. So, you know, stumbled on this trail and did a bunch of work on it just to get it into more rideable condition for a bike. And all the while, there was another historic trail, like within a half mile of this first trail. And I kind of knew maybe it was out there, but I never, I just was busy with other things. And then one day I was reading in one of the history books and it was documenting the trails in this particular area near Downeyville. And it documented this one trail. And I'm like, I'm not familiar with this trail, you know, like the way they're describing it, how it gains the ridge and where it starts. And I'm like, this is, this sounds like it's right near this other trail, but I, I haven't seen this yet. And then a high school kid in town in Downeyville, who's, uh, you know, he's, he, his family goes way back to the, the, the gold rush, like their generational in Downeyville. He's like, I was hunting up the ridge. And did you know about this trail? And I saw signs like hand created signs. And I was like, that must be that trail. Right. I've gotten two confirmed reports, one in a book, one from a local. And so, yeah, I just started scrambling in the woods one day and there it was. And it went clear up to the ridge unbelievably cool trail lots of beautiful switchbacks totally unlike most other trails in downhill because there's like almost no rocks on it it's just loam and um has all all the old tree blazes you know the forest service 100 year ago tree blazes with the you know carved into the, the tree with a hatchet and so it was like a legit trail and um rallied a group of friends one week uh, it was over thanksgiving and we just went out there and just raked it top to bottom because it hadn't it was like six inches of pine needles you know because it hadn't been i mean that moto crew keeps it logged out but they they ride it a couple times a year maybe right so yeah we spent like two three days a crew of like 15 of us raked it brushed it top to bottom and now it's just it's back it's back in commission it's awesome so what type of riding would you categorize that as like what kind of grades does it have and like for people that are listening to this and are familiar with like what we see in modern trail building, like how are some of the characteristics similar or different that make it unique? Grade. You know, I think the main difference is grade. Like you just can't legally build trails like this anymore. They're too, they're way over grade, but they're still built sustainable, pretty sustainably. I mean, I wouldn't say a hundred percent sustainably because these, these trails honestly are definitely not designed for high amounts of traffic. They'll get beat up and they'll, but you need to maintain them. But like, um, I think what's important about these old trails is you can't legally build trails like this anymore, but these are historic trails. These are heritage trails. These, you know, they're not like, they're not in the official, uh, travel management plan or like the official trails plan. Maybe at one time they were, but they've fallen out over the years for whatever reason. But bottom line is they're historic and we can't abandon our history, right? This was, this was something that was created a hundred years ago by someone probably got paid to do it. The government probably funded it in a lot of, you know, whether it be federal or county or state, we can't abandon, you know, these routes just because they're not up to modern trail building standards. Otherwise we're all going to be riding the same exact trail all the time. There's just no, you got to have, you know, a different experience. And so the importance of resurrecting old trails is preserving not only the history, but also just a unique riding experience. It's just totally different than a modern trail. And it, it still rides incredibly well. It's, it's kind of crazy how these trails were originally designed for hiking or not hiking, but like packing, right? Like walking with a mule 
and a bunch of gear, but they, they're like great mountain bike trails with very minimal, uh, alteration, you know, what's the average width of one of these width. Yeah. Super narrow, super narrow. Like we're talking 18 inch, 18 inch track, you know, like, yeah. And with like big fall. So it's like minimally benched, right. Cross slope, like 40 degree cross slope. Like if you go off the outside edge of this 18 inch track, you're falling a ways. And it's, it's a little, it's definitely, um, you check yourself on some of these downhills. You're like, I could really haul down this thing. But if my front wheel goes off the outside, outside edge of that trail track, I'm, I'm rolling all the way down to the river, you know? So, uh, yeah, you dial it back a little bit. <laughs> when you find these and you brush them out and you get all the, the pine needles off and whatnot, do, are you ma- are you remapping them or are they being recorded in any way? Or are you keeping them kind of like underground? So they're like guided things. I'm just curious to know what, you know, what your process is there. I, you know, so I try not to be, I'm not the trail police, right? Like I'm not trying to dictate to people what they can and can't do. I think that if it's a historic trail that's been there all along, that was built a hundred years ago, if someone wants to Strava it or GPS it and upload it, like, I don't see anything wrong with that because this is like a pre-existing historic route, right? Um, I'm not going to be out there like giving people coordinates and telling them where to go. You got to find this. Like, that's the other thing is like, there's so much event. The adventure portion of finding a trail has been completely like deflated by social media and the the convenience of your phone. And I don't use any, I don't, I don't ride with a GPS. I don't ride with a device. Like I don't even, I just, I just go ride. I don't know how, like, I estimate how far I ride. I estimate how much I climb based on seat of the pants, right? Like I felt like a 20 mile ride and 4,000 feet of climbing. And I'm usually within 10%, right? But I don't document this stuff. I just ride it and other people. So I'll be out, you know, finding one of these trails and someone's like, can you send me the GPS track? I'm like, no, but if you go ride it and record it, you'll have the GPS track. (laughs) If you go find (laughs) it. But yeah, I think there needs to be and also part of it is just like some of these trails aren't ready for high traffic. So I don't want to blow them up too much because then, you know, there's no funding available for some of these historic routes. So if they do get hit too hard, you know, it's, it's on the volunteers to do all that maintenance work. And so, yeah, it's kind of those, it's the fruit for those who are like, who like to climb the tree higher, right? It's, it's low hanging fruit in a sense that the trail's already there. You just need to do the work to get it running again, but it's high hanging fruit because a lot of these trails are hard to access. They're not easy to like shuttle, which is good, right? Otherwise they get totally hammered and you got to put in some effort to enjoy the fruit of that trail, which is the way it should be. So one of the other initiatives coming out of the La Sierra is connected communities. Correct. What do you have for knowledge on this? I know it's a pretty big thing in terms of what Sierra Buttes is doing to try to revitalize and bring some more value in terms of recreational value to these communities. Give the listeners like what that actually is, what Connected Communities is. Um, Connected Communities is a, is a legacy project using trails as a tool to foster economic development and vital, vitality in these like economically disadvantaged communities in rural California. It's a 600 proposed 600 plus mile trail network connecting 15 towns across four counties in the Northern Sierra Nevada, um, using a combination of historic routes and new routes for all trail users from motorized to non-motorized. That sounds, I mean, that's, that's a pretty incredible undertaking for sure. And there, and it's been documented to some degree. I know there's at least one movie out on it, I believe. Correct. Yeah. We, there's, there's been a lot of press actually. Um, over the last couple of years, I mean, between like short films, you know, the bike industry has, has covered it quite a bit. There's an article in the New York Times about it. There's an article in the LA Times about it. I mean, it's, and I think too, the testament to this idea is just um, in a very partisan world, you know, this is a bipartisan effort. You have people from both sides of the political table coming to the table to say, this is good for the community. Um, it's one, one rare thing that everyone can agree on in a, in a world of disagreements these days. 
And I think that's a huge testament to the importance of this project. Yeah, that is pretty important. So I think one of your other jobs is you said the word shuttle earlier. Are you still shuttle driving for for uh, Sierra Buttes? No, no, my my I wouldn't say my shuttle driving days are over, but I'll still drive a shuttle if 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 called up because you know there's there's a number of us uh, shuttle driving alumni out there, and uh, it was super fun. I did it for four seasons in Downeyville and met so many awesome people, and just like it's it's great to give people a ride up the hill on their vacation when they're either you know, longtime locals or first time riders in Downeyville. And yeah, it was super fun, but yeah, I haven't been driving the shuttle these days. You got any good stories from that? Oh, the shuttle? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Yeah. I mean, I mean, any that you can, any that you, you know, maybe change the characters and make it I've a had, fiction. Yeah, well, I've had some, I had, I have a friend, uh, you may know him, I'll, he'll go nameless, but if he's listening, he'll know this story, but he was bike industry guy, media guy. And, you know, we were, um, I think it was during the, it might've been during the classic weekend, Downeyville classic, which is like the big party weekend. Right. And, um, yeah, he got we, what we call Downeyville. He just went too hard in the paint at St. Charles and just paid for it. And the next morning was in the truck, not looking too healthy, you know, and, but just kind of was going to rally and we're driving up the highway and, I mean, it was a straight bit of road. It wasn't even curvy. Right. And he just started going green and was like, you got to pull over right now and just open the sliding door and yakking on the side of the highway with a full van. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, he'll never live that one down. And that's, you know, getting Downeyville and that's the lighter side. Right. And then there's other things where like, there's more serious stuff where like people get hurt and, or people get lost and, um, having to assemble like a search crew you know, you got to go find this person or rescue or, you know, uh, extract this person. But there's, there's no shortage of uh, stories in the van. I think that's the main thing about shuttle driving is you just hear lots of awesome stories from, you know, hijinks and tales to people visiting from another part of the world who've never been here before. And yeah, you just, and I feel bad because I have a lot of people come up to me like, Hey, I rode the van with you. My name so-and-so remember. And like on the surface, I'm I don't remember, but then when they start to talk, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, totally, I remember, right? Yeah, for those that aren't familiar with Downeyville, what is you know? So when you do a shuttle at Downeyville, what kind of what are we talking for distance back to where you start, depending on where you go? Like, what's a what's a good average or a, a good ride that somebody might partake in? The standard downhill is about fifteen miles, and like it's about five thousand vertical feet. You can do other options that'll add vert. Um, if you start at Packer Saddle, which is at 7,000 feet and ride straight down to Downeyville, Downeyville's at about 3,000 feet. There's a little bit of climbing um, along that route that gets you close to 5,000, but you can do as much as almost 7,000 if you climb up to the top of the Sierra Buttes, which is at 8,500 feet, and then descend back to Downeyville. Um, you can get like some of the most vert in North America. Is that the classic downhill, Downeyville downhill classic trail? Not from the top of the, not from the top of the Sierra Buttes. That's kind of an added bonus tack on, but the standard Downeyville downhill that the rate, the XC in the downhill race uses is 15 miles and five, like just about 5,000 vertical feet. Yeah. And if I remember it, that hasn't happened since COVID, but we'll be coming back in 2023. Yeah. That's a good question. My sources tell me 50, 50. So we'll see. They're working on it. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, it's a race I've always wanted to go to. I don't do a whole lot of racing these days. Um, typically just one or two a season now, but that's one of those like a legit, I mean, it's, it's called the Donneville classic for a reason, right? It's a classic. Oh, it's the grand, it's the, it's the granddaddy of all mountain bike races, like period. It, it, it encapsulates everything amazing about our sport into one awesome weekend. Like just the town itself, its location, the legend of the course, the legend of just surviving the course, right? There, everybody who's done the Downeyville Classic has a Downeyville Classic story or five. Like they just, and there's, you know, surviving that event, whether you're just trying to finish it or win it, is a little bit of preparation, a little bit of strategy, and a fair bit of luck. You know, there, there have been a few people who've been pretty much able to dial that thing in to the point where luck's not much of a factor, but it still is. Yeah. There's always a little bit of luck involved with that course. 
you know, and yeah, it's, it, it's all the things they said, monster climb. And it's a even more monstrous descent. Like there's no other race course that I know of where you can actually lose big on the climb and still win on the downhill. There yeah. aren't many courses where you can make up the time you've lost in, and then some on the downhill. Yeah. And one of those people that has that dialed is Mark Weir. Mark Cosby, the kindred spirit of the stewardship called him the Muhammad Ali of Downeyville. Like he was just the brash guy that just brought all challengers. Right. And said, nobody can beat me. And for a while there, he was right until a 15 year old kid named Henry O'Donnell beat him. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, <laughs> the only local born and raised, who's now the Sierra Buttes trail stewardships, trail boss lives in Quincy, you know, is building the Mount Huff trail network in Quincy. And at 15 years old, beat Mark Weir at the top of his game. And if I remember right, he went on to do some pro downhill racing too, correct? He did. The 15 yeah. year old we're talking about now, not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was on the syndicate factory team, traveled the world. Yep. Yeah. In years old, you know, like he's definitely legend status, but yeah. And then, you know, another guy that I think, you know, everyone talks about Mark Weir, of course, in Downeyville, cause he kind of put it on the map, but Carl Decker, like for five years in a row, Carl Decker won that race. He had that thing down to a science. He knew exactly how to win that thing. And I think if there was anybody you know, aside from Weir who, you really had that thing completely dialed inch for inch. It was Carl Decker. What else do you have going on or what's um, kind of what's coming up or do you have anything in the, in the pipeline in terms of stuff you want to talk about for any of the stuff you're writing? I know you just, you, uh, you've had a bunch of articles in free hub, which is a magazine that I think if you're a mountain biker, you need to be paying attention to that magazine. Cause they do a lot of great stuff in the world, in the space of trails and trail building and communities. Yeah. And it's like one of the only print publications left in our sports. So help keep it alive and keep my profession alive. Subscribe to Freehub, please. Thank you. <laughs> I'm a subscriber. <laughs> you know, reading papers fun. I mean, you know, like I know in the world of like computers and smartphones that, you know, it, it's convenient, but reading papers still fun. Yeah. It was an art. It was an issue that came out earlier this year on Vermont, the Vermont photo book, I think they called it, but there's a lot of words in it as well. And I literally, I picked that thing up the day it showed up in my mailbox and I didn't put it down until I had read everything. Yeah. I do that every month. I subscribe to, you know, Backcountry Ski Magazine, Adventure Journal, Free Hub, High Country News. Like I have a bunch of different publications that I subscribe to and, and it's nice to read print. And in a world where everything's going digital, print we need to keep it alive. You know, Adventure Sports Journal, which is a, a regional California newspaper magazine, they've been struggling to keep the publication alive in a world where advertisers don't want to advertise in print anymore. And it's, it's silly. It's crazy. It's like, it's print, man. It's not going away. You know, it might, we might be seeing, you know, we're infatuated with our new digital devices, but I guarantee you in 20 years, print's still going to be around. And, um, and people are going to get tired of always messing with their computer and their phone. And, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm committed as a writer, as a, as a storyteller, print is my, my medium. I love print and I focus on working with publications that, that commit to print. Yeah. Yeah. And free hub is that. And, and truthfully in the world of mountain biking, they're the, in my opinion, the one and only publication that has truly stuck with trails and trail communities, which is, you know, how this whole thing works, right? We can't go mountain biking without them. Exactly. Yeah. Freehub's done an amazing job. It's been fun working with them and um, th their story, right? Just like how they started. Brandon Watts, like started that magazine in his garage in Bellingham and has grown it over the years, just like year at a time, you know, a little bit at a time. And has turned it into this like juggernaut of a like a media label in the sport, like some really awesome films. Like I worked with the Freehub crew when they did Dirt Magic. That was funded by Patagonia about the Downeyville Classic and Downeyville and the stewardship and Mark Weir. And it's an awesome flick, man. And and the Freehub crew like filmed that, you know. And so it's it's awesome to see that kind of energy in the sport. Yeah, the stories, I just got done, the new issue, 
story about Johnny Benda, who built, if you're familiar with Truckee, built um, all of the Yogi, Yogi Bear Trails, which in Jackass Ridge, which is like a staple of Truckee and a staple of Tahoe, it's put Truckee on the map as kind of a destination spot. And Johnny's been just digging in the woods for 30 years with him and a couple of friends. And that's just his life. It's, he doesn't, right. He doesn't have a cell phone. He doesn't have internet. He's just like old school and just so happy all the time. One of the happiest people you'll ever meet. And he's he creates this amazing trail riding experience for everyone because that's just what he's born to do. He loves it. And so telling that story was great. You know, he's been hiding kind of in the woods literally for the last 30 years. And I don't know, he might be a little uncomfortable now with all the attention, but he deserves it. You know, he deserves credit. And then last summer did a story about the Toyabi. That's another big project that I've been working on in central Nevada. The Toyabi range is if you've ever driven Highway 50. So going back to what we were talking about earlier with Kyle Orvith and Highway 50, the Toyabi Range, there's a trail called the Toyabi Crest Trail. Uh, it's a historic national recreation trail, 75 miles long, longest trail in Nevada. Half of it's in wilderness, half of it's not. I've been focused on the non-wilderness portion and resurrecting this trail. 40 years of deferred maintenance, completely gone in sections, like you can't even see it. And for the past five years, I've just been out there with a sawzall and loppers and just going to town on miles of sagebrush and aspens and bring this trail back to life for people to enjoy. And I believe you wrote that I could be wrong here and I'll let this out if I am, but I believe you wrote about the Palisade plunge. I didn't actually write okay. about, I wrote about Greg Mazu. That's right. You wrote, that's where I'm confusing that you wrote, you did the misfits, the gnomes and misfits article, which had the Correct. Palisade plunge in it. That was it. That's right. And that was where, I, and the reason why I got that confused is because that's where I first heard about the Palisade Plunge and I was kind of blown away by, and I've since covered it a bunch on this podcast, both with Greg and in one of his builders, James Flatten, and, and then seen presentations that he's put on and what it took to get that thing built. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. That was crazy. crazy. Crazy story. Yeah. 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 I'm not in that league. That's, that's like, <laughs> I'm at the, uh, again, low hanging fruit. Oh, here's a trail that hasn't been used in 40 years. And it just needs like, you know, a few years worth of brush cutting. I can do that. That's, I'm not like hanging from a harness on the side of a cliff, building a, you know, a, a, a retaining wall for a single track. That's, that's above my pay grade. Yeah. Full on. You gotta be a full on <laughs> rock climber just to get it built. Yeah. 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 Not me. I don't like hanging from things. But you are doing the historic aspect of things and that, you know, that don't discount that too, because that's a lot. I mean, it takes a lot of time and research. It's different. It's not maybe hanging off of a cliff, but there's a lot to that. Yeah. I mean, that the Toyabi project is, it's, uh, it's super rewarding because I think what's awesome about it is that, yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's work that's going to last a while. So, you know, things don't grow super fast out in the Great Basin. It's, it's, um, it's not like the Sierra Nevada where, you know, you build a trail and then if you don't maintain it five years later, it's gone or under 200 fallen trees. You know, in the, in the Toyabi, the work you put in, the return on the effort lasts a while. And so this trail, you know, 40 years of deferred maintenance, it was still there though. Kind, I mean, it was still there. It just had sagebrush grown over it and like, you know, a few fallen trees and mahogany growing in the trail. And, but once you go through there and give it a good mow, it'll last. 10 to 20 years. Right. So it's been with how limited the resources, like first couple of years was just me and a couple of friends just going out there until I got more serious about it and applied for a grant and got funded and got a conservation core crew out there last summer. And we mowed some trail. We've got probably 25 miles of trail uh, cleared and probably another 15 to go on the existing stuff. And we're applying for another grant this fall and um, we'll uh, finish the work in the next two years. Um, and there'll be this point to point 35 mile, just absolutely stunning, super remote backcountry epic, like one of a kind. There's no other trail I've ever experienced like the Toyabi Crest Trail. It's one, absolutely one of a kind. Yeah. To bring this full circle, and you, when you talked about growth, they, brought me back to like where I live and where you grew up where like a year and that stuff is overgrown, right? 
Cause yeah. <laughs> do you get back out East at all? Or have you been back out East in the last few years to ride? Yeah, I go back East. My family still lives in Boston. So I, I go out there, I try to get out there. Well, COVID, I took a few years off, but I was out there the last two years in the summer. And, you know, I ride, I haven't ridden out there really in a couple of years, but I do try and get up back East and ride whenever I can. Yeah. It's, it's awesome to get that diverse, you know, you get the high desert versus, you know, out East where it's super forested and lush green, like crazy I mean, stuff will grow on super fast. Oh yeah. East coast is, yeah. It, it's like the Pacific Northwest, right? I mean, it, if you don't put a hedge trimmer on it once every couple of months, like <laughs> you can't find the trail, right? Well, before we uh, wrap this one up, Kurt, would you like to leave us with any parting words of wisdom or anything that we haven't covered yet that you'd like to cover? Cause like I said, we totally, this is a total last minute, like literally last minute, like, Hey, I'm available. Okay. Let's record now. Yeah. Um, I think going back to what we were talking about earlier, trails are the nucleus of our sport and without good trail mountain biking doesn't exist. And so it's super, I think it's super important for especially folks in the bike industry to recognize that and prioritize trails. I mean, you know, I know that, you know, bikes and products and everything, those are all great and promoting that and putting money into that, but without trails, none of the stuff matters. And so it's really important, you know, companies like Santa Cruz, for example, with Pater, like that's awesome, right? They're matching these, pro they're funding these trail projects. They're putting their money back into the, into the dirt. And, and it's helping create, you know, these opportunities like, you know, connected communities in, in the Lost Sierra. And we need more companies doing that. I mean, I think between youth mountain biking, like NICA and like trail efforts, I mean, those are the things that the, in, the investments of money should be going to, right? Because that's what's going to grow the sport. And, um, you know, just seeing, I think, especially since COVID, like how much time and attention has been given to trails and the importance of trails and the importance of recreation and getting outside. I think we're, and I, I know you've probably heard this from other people that you've interviewed who are trails people. I think we're at the beginning of a huge period of like trail growth and, and, and like the, the blossoming of an industry and a, and a, um, an economic machine. I mean, it's a, it's a driving machine, like trails drive recreation economy that you know tourism economy like it's not the end all be all to all solutions right it's not the thing that's going to save a mountain town by itself but a, a trail network especially like what's going on in the la sierra with this proposed connected communities project it's going to be a way to help save a community by creating this asset it's a public asset it's public infrastructure should be funded as such, like a highway or a bridge. Like the fact that these trail organizations have to scrape for dollars, like the stewardship is just scraping for money, right? To find it everywhere they can. When this is a public infrastructure project, this should be funded by the government, should be funded by federal and state and county. And, and you know, and there are foundations now that are stepping in and these, and these um, you know, organizations that have money that see the importance of trails and they're investing that money. And it's good to see, I think the next few years, there's going to be a lot more big things happening in that regard, you know, between, especially in our region in Reno, Lake Tahoe, Tambo, what Tambo's doing, what the stewardship's doing in the La Sierra, um, in the foothills, you know, you have a bunch of projects going on. And then in the Reno area, there's a lot happening. And these trails are getting connected. Like they're linking. I think that's the other important thing is all these different little pockets working on trails, make sure they connect to one another. You know, there's a couple of folks working on a trail from the PCT for mountain bikes, basically from Canada to Mexico, right? The Orogenesis. And it's communicating with these different trail groups to connect these different zones so that you could, if you wanted to ride all the way from Canada to Mexico on single track, you can. And ultimately, ultimately, I think that will happen. Yeah. And you, you know, you, you keep, you keep hitting on Reno and 
communities like Reno, like that makes that community a more vibrant place to live. And especially if you get trails where you can ride from home, you know, I've said it almost every episode or almost, I mean, I say it all the time with more trails close to home, that initiative that Imba is doing is an initiative that everybody should be doing in their communities and, and riding to ride and, and not having to drive. Obviously we, you know, going to bigger networks and more epic remote excursions is important too, but having that where you can go after work, you know, for an hour or whatever, your kids can get there even more importantly, right? You don't have to drive them. They can take themselves. Close to home trails, man. It's super important. I mean, that, that again, like, it's like youth, like NICA, right? Youth cycling development, like having close to home trails. I mean, that's why I became so infatuated with trails. Cause in my backyard where I grew up in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, I was lucky enough to be near a forest. And I'd just go out there and wander around and get lost as a kid on a, on a BMX bike. And, you know, having access to the outdoors like that is super critical. And in these more urban suburban areas, having a bike park or trail network or something close to home is like critical to fostering growth in our, in our sport in the future. Yeah. That's how a lot of people get into it. I mean, how many people get into a mountain biking through an Epic ride or something like that? It's like, you got to start somewhere, right? It's like that little home ski area that you grew up skiing at, you know, and then you took it to the mountains. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Well, Kurt, I really appreciate your flexibility and the fact that we just were able to totally connect off the cuff on a moment's notice. Freestyle. It's like, that's how I like to do it, man. Yeah. But I don't see a disco ball. No, that thing got kind of beat. So it's been through, you had mentioned that earlier. That thing is like, I need to make a new one. It's like literally like falling apart. That was a legit seventies disco era disco ball that I bought on Craigslist for like 25 bucks. It weighs like 20 pounds. And it was the inside of it is like paper mache, you know, from like a 1975 San Diego union tribune newspaper, like legit and put a hard hat in it. and rocked it for years and friends would wear it and it just gotten beat up and it's fallen apart. So yeah, I need an engineer version two, 2.0. Yeah. You have to bring back 2.0 for the next Downeyville classic. <laughs> oh yeah. I think it, Hey man, if the classic comes back, then maybe I'll make a special new disco ball. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. That's a great way to end this one. Do you have anybody before we, before we do on this one, do you have anybody that you'd like to thank any way, any, any stuff that you'd, like to shout out to, for people, for listeners. My parents were putting me on this planet, number one, right? <laughs> and my partner, Elizabeth Swan John, she's awesome. She, she's like, you know, loves trails. It's awesome to go on adventures with her. She's always willing to do a, a hike, what I call it. It's not really a hike. It's usually bushwhacking through impossible forest, right? But she puts on her car arts and her glasses and her gloves and her boots. She's like, let's do this. And, you know, so she's always game for an adventure, which is awesome. And yeah, just folks uh, who loves to get out and support trails. This Toyabi project, I just got back the other day from being out there and like 50 people showed up in the middle of nowhere, Nevada, because they heard about it and they're like pumped on it. And, you know, that's how these trails will stay alive is the interest people have in a different adventure, getting a little bit outside their backyard zone and, and exploring. And just like any organization that supports trails, like seeing what Santa Cruz has done for Downeyville and the classic and the La Sierra. I mean, more bike industry companies that can do that. It's great. It's like giving it back, giving back, putting back into the sport, be more of a giver than a taker. Right. And, uh, so I always have appreciation for people who do that. Yep. I always leave it better than the way you found it. Absolutely. Yeah, you bet. Well, thank you, Kurt. I really appreciate you taking your time on this sunny afternoon. I don't know if it's sunny where you're at, but it's sunny where I'm at. And I think we're both going to do the same thing after we're done. Go mountain biking. Go mountain biking. You bet, man. So thank you, Kurt. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you have heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes.
Please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature in Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Mm-hmm.